0: I'm not someone who like worries about not working. I'm not like, "Oh, what if no one calls me tomorrow?" But I do find that like in my experience you always have to be sort of intentional about keeping that ball rolling because it definitely can just sort of like fall back in on you. And maybe it's different if you're in like a big market and you're just sort of constantly surrounded by people who are in that space and those opportunities are coming up, but at least for me like living in a smaller market you have to be proactive about that stuff.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Shotlist, where we talk about how to make a life and a living behind the lens. I'm cinematographer Marshall Chupa, and today I'm speaking with Evan Borsier. In this episode, Evan and I dive into how he found his way into getting paid as a filmmaker, how to manage and pay yourself as a freelance creative with an income that always seems to fluctuate, the mindset it takes to endure this wild freelance career while keeping a healthy mindset, and the snowball effect of building relationships and getting on-set experience. Evan has been someone I've followed over the years, whether that be his YouTube channel or podcast, and find him to be really honest and open about the things he shares in what sometimes feels like a gated community where everyone is holding their cards a little close to their chest. I'm excited to share this conversation with you. Let's dive in. All right, Evan. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. I appreciate you uh, jumping on. I'm so excited,
0: man. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah. So I think I originally discovered you maybe, I don't know, five or so years ago, funny enough, coming across a YouTube video about how to use the Easy Rig. (laughs) This is my claim to fame. Is it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It keeps coming back at you? Yeah. The gift that keeps on giving. Oh my goodness. I mean, you were the only one that did a, a decent video... About it, I think that I saw out there at all for those who don't know, the easy rig is just that backpack that holds the camera on a string and takes the weight off. but I noticed that video has like seventy six thousand views, funny enough. I'm sure it so
0: it looks like that one went viral on you, yeah, I mean, especially within the like niche community of relatively high end filmmaking equipment, <laughs> that video did better than. <laughs> anything else I did, which was funny because it was originally like a private Patreon video, which is where it's like not produced that well or anything. Like it was just like me and my brother and sister, like making this little thing. And at some point I made it public and yeah, I've had more people bring that video up to me than anything else I've ever done. I think.
1: That's hilarious. You never know what's going to stick, I guess, when you throw all that spaghetti against the wall, but uh, that's hilarious. Well, that's, I think I found you. And then over the years, I'd noticed you also had a podcast called the super secret film cast. Yes, sir. Which, yeah, I think besides like the wandering DV, like that's the only, I think other one I could find at the time in the last five years of just, you know, cinematography and talking about filmmaking in general. I think you were one of the guys in the beginning to kind of kick things off. I noticed, would you say that in this space?
0: Yeah. I mean, because I started doing all that probably, I don't know, like eight or nine years ago now, I want to say. And at the time, there wasn't really anyone bridging out of the like YouTuber prosumer video world into like actual commercial and film production world. So that was something that I was just really passionate as I was trying to navigate the space myself of like, how the heck do I get into these other worlds that I see exist? like, how can I share that journey? And there were a few other people like Patrick O'Sullivan uh, was someone who I was following and who's inspiring me. Matt Workman for a while was doing some really good stuff. Oh, yes. I feel like it was a relatively short stint with like, he cranked out so much great stuff for the cinematography database. And then it like all went dark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But he was actually, I, I do, I owe a lot to Matt. He had me on his podcast. And that was one of the things that sort of popped off the facebook community that i was running and then the podcast that i launched and like i definitely got a lot of lift from him because yeah it was like him patrick and me were sort of the only people in the space that i really remember at least at that time
1: that makes sense okay so i mean tell me a little bit how you got into this whole thing you said eight or nine years ago that was happening like if you strip it all back to ground zero where did things
0: start for you If you trace it all the way back, I remember like when I was little, I don't know, I was probably like seven or something. I I might've been a little older. I don't know. Cause I remember we were living in New York and I moved from New York to Massachusetts when I was like 11 or 12. So it was before that. But anyway, long story short, I remember being obsessed with the idea of photography for a while. Like I would get photo magazines and stuff and research all these cameras. And this was like the kind of kid I was though, that was like, I'm going to research like what paintball guns I'm going to get and what snowboarding things. And then I would never actually get any of it because we like didn't spend money on those things, but I love the like theoretical exploration of things. And so I like remember having this whole phase where I was super theoretically into it, but never really hands-on got into it. And then I sort of didn't really touch it again. I was more focused on like music and digital art and like design stuff. And then to make a long story relatively short, was like working at a church um, at the time when I was 18, working part-time at like a Marshall's and an ace hardware, which are just like general retail stores around here interning at a church doing like music and design stuff and uh, got given a camera for Christmas and was sort of like off to the races from there. So I went from really having no experience and no real intention either, to be honest. Like I wasn't one of those people who was like, I grew up wanting to make movies. Like I liked watching things. I was really inspired by like, I feel like there was this really strong era of like early YouTube content creators like Julian Smith and the Rooster Teeth Shorts. And some of these guys, like even the Lonely Island guys were people who like I was coming at it more from like a comedy internet culture side of things and seeing people make these like produced things was really inspiring for me. And that was sort of what pulled me into it. And so, yeah, I like got a Canon T3i and the first video that I ever shot was like this conference recap thing at a church conference in Atlanta that I was not hired to be at, but just decided to make something at. And, uh, I think that got like 16,000 views, which was a lot at the time. It's crazy how much like view inflation has happened over the years where like 12 years ago, cause I got my T3i like around 12, 11, 12 years ago. It was like 10,000 views, 100,000 views was a lot. And now everyone measures everything on TikTok and like millions. <laughs> yeah, right. But yeah, so I like got, got the T3i and that was the start. I'd already quit my Ace Hardware job, but I quit my Marshall's job and was like, I'm just gonna figure out full-time freelancing and being self-employed and never look back. So I've wandered through the industry, but ever since I've been 18, this is all I've done really. So, I mean, did you have some savings then? You said you went all in. No, (laughs) I was just the low overhead lifestyle. Like I remember, I want to say that I had like $400 in my checking account. Cause I remember like saving up sort of for my like nifty 50 and being very much in this world of just like overwhelmed at even just the price of L glass and stuff, you know, like how do people do any of this? Like I'm used to getting paid nine bucks an hour at this place. Like, but that was also part of, I think what made me so fascinated was like, the first time someone was like, Hey, we'll give you like $150 to take engagement photos. Even I was like, well, this is a way better gig than like two days of ringing people up at a retail establishment. So I'm just going to figure it out. And yeah, that was sort of my mindset. So I didn't have, I mean, not to get like super into it, but it was like, my parents were divorced. My dad was out of the picture. I have five younger siblings. So I had like a lot of support from my mom and my mom did. Uh, she bought me that T3I for Christmas, but Past that, it was sort of like, okay, we're just going to bootstrap this whole operation and just sort of like continually reinvesting in myself, reinvesting in the work. Yeah, I made a lot of like, what in hindsight were like relatively big bets early on, I guess you could say. Like I went to Masters in Motion like nine months, uh, like a year later, which was like a workshop they were doing in Austin that had a lot of high-end like filmmakers at it. like the Andy Baker from National Geographic Channel was there and like Vincent LaFerre and Joe Simon and the variable guys and this whole other world that I hadn't been exposed to. But I think it was like a $2,500 trip. And I was 19 and had just gotten a T3i and everyone there's like, I'm a producer. I'm an AC. I'm a whatever. What are you doing? I'm like, I just got a camera and I make videos. I don't know what any of this means. (laughs) And then like, I'd see it's people like, here's our behind the scenes thing of our Alexa with the, you know, an Optimo on it. And I was like, holy shit. Like, what is this whole world? But that was the thing that was like, it honestly, I felt like I got dropped into the Wizard of Oz. Like it was like a whole different world of just like, this is magic. None of it makes sense to me, but I don't want to do anything else than figure out how to be here all the time.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's awesome to know that you, I mean, jumped in. Sounds like both feet, tons of risk. But I mean, that's what I think the beauty of being young is we have that room for air, perhaps maybe not all the responsibilities built into our life yet. And that sounds like a beautiful bit of timing, I think, to just, yeah, go full in. I do agree that, yeah, going from just being able to like have a DSLR and run around to like jumping into that world with those guys must have been pretty mind blowing because I think as I personally got into this space, you know, I had to learn slowly, I guess you could say. I never had that opportunity to just get onto a big set for some time. So, but once you do, you start to see all the moving parts and all the, what's possible. And I think, yeah, your mind completely expands. So that's cool. That it happened in the beginning for you.
0: Well, and it was still pretty polarized though. Like I was going back and forth from like going to that event and meeting those people and learning a lot and then still going back and being like, okay, I have my like T3I and I'm trying to like sell a wedding video for 800 bucks or like do a music video for 500 bucks. Like I definitely wasn't doing high level work, but I, there was sort of this sense that like that stuff all exists. And so this is sort of like A means to move in that direction more than anything, which I think served me well just in that, like, I never really like settled anywhere, I guess. You know, like, there were some people like, oh, I want to be like a wedding video person. I was like, I'm going to do this and learn everything about this. And then I'm going to like sort of move on. And that I was always just like being intentional about like, how do I be more creative? How do I involve more people, be more collaborative? Like, I don't really want to stay in this world of just me making stuff all the time. So I have to find a way to keep expanding and just like having that reference point that that was possible being someone also like in New England at the time when I started I was living on Cape Cod which is like there's no artistic production anything out there that it was sort of like a little bit of a touch point for me to just like stay connected to the industry instead of getting sucked so completely into the local world of like just smaller minded production drama nonsense that I feel like can suck people into the abyss of like <laughs> this is all there is. It was like, no, I know this isn't all there is, yeah, hundred percent so how
1: long did you stay in that let's just say the camp of like engagement to you know videos to five hundred dollar this that like how was that journey progressively evolving, so to speak
0: it's a good question it's one of those things it's like it's honestly hard for me to like define the chronology of it in hindsight. Like it was all very concurrent. Six months after that master's in motion, oh, maybe it was less than that. It was shortly after master's in motion. I got invited by this nonprofit to go to Haiti for two weeks and like did a sort of mini documentary like brand film thing there that was just me. And it was all just like a favor. They were paying for all the travel and stuff, but I was like, I just want to make stuff. That opened some more doors. It was like all these weird worlds. The first wedding video that I ever did was like through a friend who was a photographer. And I think I want to say that they were like, I'd never done anything like that. And so they're like, oh, we can like give you 200 bucks to try it or whatever. And I like rented another camera from Lens Pro to go and stuff and uh, just spent all the money on it. But that wedding video somehow ended up in the office. It was like the bride's aunt Worked in the admissions office at Massachusetts Maritime Academy, which is like a college right around the corner. And uh, the way I heard the story was they were like, We watched the wedding video, and like everyone in the department got called in to watch it and cry. And so I just got an email from their marketing person <laughs> like the next day that was like, Hey, we want you to come in. And I was like, I felt way out of my depth because I was like, I've never done anything quote unquote like with like a real client. Like I've done some like fun nonprofit stuff with friends and whatever. And then I remember she was like, so what do you, like, we want you to do some of this stuff, like event, mostly event recap, type stuff, but she was like, what do you charge? And I was like, honestly, I don't know. Like, I haven't really done this on this level. Like I was pretty straight up about like, I'm pretty new to this. And she's like, well, we used to pay these professional guys who like, weren't that good. And honestly, I think you're better. And so can we just call it like a hundred bucks an hour for now? And I was like, inside my jaw drops. Right. Right. Because I was like, yeah, man, like <laughs> screw Marshalls. <laughs> so that was a, this relatively rapid relationship that really opened the door for me. But it was like, that was the only thing like that that I had for like two years, you know, it was like, I was like doing that and that paid a lot. And then I was also doing all these like favorite jobs and whatever else. And like second shooting for people and started sneaking on to like helping other people's sets and stuff. And So it wasn't like there was these clear phases. It was just like a new thing would get brought in and then like some of the lower stuff would phase out. And then like there was one point where I had pitched like a local friend on doing a TV commercial for his fish market. And um, there was a project going on with Mass Maritime Academy concurrently. And I brought my buddy Chris up uh Chris Fenner from Atlanta and we just like sort of two man banded this like crazy four or five day thing where we were like shooting mornings and evenings with the fish market and like some middle of the day stuff with the college and it was madness. But those two projects came out and then immediately opened up more doors where it was like I think the I want to say that the budget was like three grand for this thing and we just like I gave Chris like fifteen hundred bucks. We stole a bunch of gear from Lens Pro to go and made something, but then like the college was like, hey, we want you to do this again. Like we understand that you stretched on this. Like, can we give you like $10,000? And I was like, perfect. And so you're still in that world of like, if you were to look at it now from like a true quote unquote, like industry rates, yada, yada, yada. Like it's not like big budget stuff, but in the world of just like going from super scrappy to making stuff that actually looked and felt good. Like those were really big steps that just sort of kept opening the door. And then at some point in there, I guess I, I was really like directing, producing, like doing all the sort of direct to client stuff myself, but I shot enough stuff that looked good that people started asking me to shoot stuff for them. And that was when I sort of curved, I was also getting sort of like burnt out of the like direct to client game. And so I was like, I'm just going to double down on this like DP thing. Cause it's a lot easier to like get paid for two days and let people handle all the other BS than it is to like right. deal with revisions and everything and sales. And so. I sort of backed out and that's when I went down the the DP rabbit hole and was still, you know, I've sort of always had a lot of plates spinning but really mostly focused on the DP thing for like the next 6 or 7 years or whatever.
1: So it sounds like you kind of had the one nest egg, so to speak, that one opportunity from one client that gave you the opportunity to kind of relax a bit or just be like, okay, like consistent incomes coming in, but you're still hustling, spinning all the plates on the side. And then the DP thing comes along, you realize you don't have to wear all the hats. Perhaps this could be a thing where you could just focus on the camera work.
0: At what stage did that happen? I think that like so the beginning of the DP stuff, I think that started with Chris bringing me in on some like ESPN stuff as like a second operator. And then there were some of those gigs that like I was with him on that then he couldn't do. And so that I I got pulled in as sort of like the a guy. And then once I had done a few of those sort of like with other production companies and stuff, it just spiraled out. So I think that was like three or four years in ish, something like that. But yeah, it was really interesting because I started like connecting. It was right around that time was also the time that the beginning of the, let's say like, for lack of a better term, like influencer presence, things started to expand, which sort of worked out concurrently. I honestly, I still don't feel like I got that much like work that I could directly trace back to like Instagram or the podcast or anything. But I definitely like there were a few relationships, whether it was through friends or friends or whatever, like I was just working with agencies and, and companies that weren't local a lot. Like I was just flying for work a lot which I think was was really critical because there was just like nothing good going on locally. And so I sort of like caught this wave of just having a few consistent relationships at any point in time. You know, I don't know what everyone else's experience is, but I feel like most of my career, there's like two to six sort of irons in the fire at any moment. And that relationship may pop up like one to five things a year, let's say. And then like, one of them will die off and then a new one will come in. And sometimes you've got like, here's the three things that we really did in 2021 for the most part. But yeah, I was never like slammed with all these inquiries, but I stayed pretty busy just between a couple different opportunities and squeezing in some of my own personal stuff and direct client stuff. And at that time, like when I was also really doing like YouTube podcast, Patreon, Facebook group, I was just trying myself on both ends, to be honest. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I can get to be a lot for sure. And I guess I asked that question because I think a lot of people that I've spoken with who are listening to this podcast, they're trying to figure out that transition point into perhaps being a DP or a cinematographer or leveling up as a commercial photographer, whatever that is. And they have done all the, the wedding
0: stuff or the corporate this, that, and the other to pay the bills. And it's like they're that flipping point. Yeah, it's like a weird chicken and the egg problem, right? Cause it's like mm. you want to get into that world. But it feels so daunting. Like if you haven't worked with crews to be like, I don't like, I remember being like, I don't know what the hell I'd tell a gaffer to do. Like, I don't, you know, like it's all just, it feels like a big black box. And I guess I feel like, I don't know, maybe you have more of like a direct question on this, but my experience was that it's not, there's not this super sharp delineation that's like, oh, here's the moment where now I'm like DPing you know, it started with just basically like cam oping is really, I guess what I'd call it. And then like the, it's like, okay, now can we like bring a few lights and I'm like setting up lights and cam oping. and then it's like, oh, it would be great to have someone to like help with the lights. And then it's like, that just sort of spirals a little bit more and more. So the way I looked at it was always just like being intentional about bringing other people in, like even on my own stuff, like the college stuff, you want to call it corporate stuff or whatever was like, I'm going to bring in Chris Fenner, who I know has actually DP'd like big music videos. And I'm going to hire him so that I can watch and learn everything he does. (laughs) And that was like super valuable for me just to be like, hire someone and then ask them all the questions and steal everything you possibly can from them. And I, it's funny because I'll tell that to people sometimes too. Like there's some of those people that I keep an eye on sort of in our market that'll talk to me and are like bridging and they're like, oh, I have some potential bigger jobs. And it's like, I have no interest. Like I feel no pressure to poach your work or anything. But if you ever are out of your depths and like want help, I'm happy to do that. Like people did that for me and like pulling someone in who can navigate that space for you and be like, oh, here's how to think about it. Here's how, here's the important variables. Here's what you should focus on here's what's not important here's the mental spiral you're probably going into that's not important like if you're doing that all totally by yourself it is it can be very 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 overwhelming and so i think like that's the biggest secret i have is just like don't try and do it alone like find other people and help each other out yeah i think filmmaking is such
1: a team sport and i started out in stills and photography and so that was something that maybe took a little longer for me was just like always, you know, I try to do everything myself, wear all the hats, do all the things through the whole process. And realistically, it wasn't until I started collaborating with a director and then adding in someone to help, like you said, move the lights around and that kind of thing, that things started to build. And for me, my, I think the way that I was able to start to observe, maybe what you were able to do on going to those workshops and stuff like that was I used trying to offer behind the scenes for other crews to get on set and just kind of be a fly on the wall observe what was going on and still be able to like give them something of quality for showing up and being there and i think i learned so much through doing that just watching other dps work or just like oh that's how they're talking to the grip or the gaff whatever it might be and seeing how the director's putting the pieces together and oh this is how they're interacting so that was kind of my way of figuring out how things operated, I guess. And then it just slowly integrated like, Oh, maybe if we have a budget, I can add in one more person, add in one more person. And then all of a sudden it's just like, you know, now it's like, wow, there's a whole team around me and things are moving and I'm talking to the microphone and things are happening. So it's pretty, pretty fun evolution, I guess you could say. But yeah, I think another question I had for you was kind of like around building relationships. So like, how were you able to start to meet people in the beginning? Obviously, it's a kind of a snowball effect and you've kind of spoken to the evolution of it, but how were you reaching out to people in the beginning?
0: Honestly, man, my whole secret weapon was just that like I went to in-person things. And whether that was Masters Motion or whether that was NAB or whether that was like, I remember going to a Still Motion course in Boston back in the day. Like, I just always found that one, I connected with people way better in person. Like I didn't, I've never really liked like social media networking, to be honest. And I I guess I sort of feel like it's overrated. Like you can have a ton of eyes on something, but how many actual like relationships or connections does that lead to? I mean, that's the biggest thing that I've sort of personally felt, especially in the wake of COVID is just like the lack of in-person community stuff for me is really hard because that's always where I have thrived. That's where random connections happen. That's where conversations lead to things. And especially within the industry, it's like so much of it is a weird game of telephone of whether it's like getting referred on a job someone else can't do or going, oh, say I know someone has this thing coming up, like being in conversations with people and sort of being top of mind is so critical. And like some of the guys that we've been like pulling into the industry locally too, it's like, I try to be proactive about involving people, but it's like, man, you guys sort of have to like put your fingers on the pulse a little bit. And, and to your point, like even just going out there and like hitting people up and being like, hey, can I just like go PA or something? Can I go like, and if you know some stuff and can be like, I'll be like a camera department helpful PA, you know, then it's like, that's even better. Maybe you're not confident enough to like be an AC, but I learned so much. It's one of the biggest things that I still wish, I was at a, a cinematography salon meet up in New York a little while ago. And uh, we were talking about how I wish it was more acceptable to just like step down a crew level and like work on your friend's stuff more often because like there was a season where I was also doing a decent amount of that. Like I, I, uh, opt like sort of, st- they, I think they sort of second you to DP sort of op thing on this Apple campaign that, uh, Nate Hertzellers was doing. And like that, those days are so valuable just to watch someone else do their thing. Because even if you know what you're doing, you know your way of doing it. And like the power of going like, I never would have thought to do that that way is incredible. There's this funny thing, like, I don't know, maybe this is a rabbit hole. I don't know if you've run into this, but when you work with people in the industry, whether it's like, I've seen this a lot with like people who either have like come out of churches and started agencies or production companies, or who have come out of like broadcast situations. Like there's some people who have like come out of ESPN and started production companies and they only know their way of doing anything because they've always been in their own little bubble. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I think one of the things that I've learned in those teams that I often bring that's really valuable is like, I've worked with so many different people on so many different things that there's a lot of flexibility there. And so I've always valued that idea of just like, get on set with different people, ask questions, watch, learn, don't assume that you have to do everything. Like even when I'm DPing stuff with like older gaffers, it's like, I'm like, hey, how would you guys do this? Because you guys always know something that I don't know. And some of my favorite tricks I've learned from stuff like that too, that it's just like, don't feel like you have to have all the answers.
1: Yeah, I feel that 100%. It is a weird world where I feel like DPs or cinematographers don't really get the opportunity to work alongside other photographers, DPs, cinematographers, unless there's an A, B camp situation going on. I mean, you're kind of, You are competition, so to speak. So, and there's only usually one of you needed on the project. So it is pretty rare to get those opportunities, um, which does send you down your own rabbit hole, which is what you just kind of hit on there. So yeah, getting unique about finding opportunities sounds like the ticket when it comes to helping out with other people's stuff on set or lending a hand. Or, I mean, I think that's also why I wanted to start this podcast. It's just kind of like breaking open. There's not a ton of information on how to do this specifically on the business side or, or on building a career, that's ironically how I would have found you, right? Just looking for things online that can help the growth part because it just isn't a ton going on. So it's cool to see that you've been able to figure out your way through that and find unique opportunities. And again, I think the snowball effect is what seems to be working for you. The energy, once the ball gets rolling, you meet this person on set, oh, hey, I need a hand next weekend. And it just kind of keeps, keeps going. Would you say that's true?
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, the honest reality of that too, though, is that like that snowball effect can very quickly go the other way. And so like, I've definitely had seasons of my career where it's like, oh, those two or three relationships that were like really consistently creative are sort of at a at a dry season now. And so it's like, we're back a little bit more in this like pay the bills type work thing and having to put that intention out there again, whether it's like doing personal projects, networking with people or whatever else. Like I'm not someone who like worries about not working. I'm not like, "Oh, what if no one calls me tomorrow?" But I do find that like in my experience you always have to be sort of intentional about keeping that ball rolling because it definitely can just sort of like fall back in on you. And maybe it's different if you're in like a big market and you're just sort of constantly surrounded by people who are in that space and those opportunities are coming up. But at least for me, like living in a smaller market, you have to be proactive about that stuff. And like COVID closed up so many doors for me because I was traveling so much and it was like my whole calendar got cleared. And so in many ways, like, to be honest, I feel like I am creatively and technically as good as I've ever been, but just like the nature of the jobs coming out of COVID have been smaller and the relationships have shifted and things have moved. And so it's been like, I've been a little bit of feeling like I'm back on that climbing the mountain thing of going like, okay, where are the people to collaborate with? Who is making cool stuff? So it's not like this glorious moment of like, oh, now I'm just like getting handed massive budgets all the time and shooting super cool stuff. And that was even one of the big takeaways, like at the salon thing, talking to a lot of the New York guys, especially it seemed like the New York guys who do bigger stuff is like, a lot of the guys doing big stuff are just dead right now. Like dead, dead, dead. Like guys were like, I've done two things so far this year. And it was funny because I felt bad, but it was like kind of validating because the last few months I've been doing more like hybrid producing, directing stuff. And there was a part of my mind that was like, oh, I'm not doing like the like bigger G&E team, like cinematography stuff. And like, I'm not really doing what I could be doing. And then there, all these guys are like, "If you're working, you're winning right now." And so I think that's like <laughs> another just like helpful mindset thing is sometimes it's really easy to get tunneled on like, I don't have five people on set with me or whatever else, And it's like, man, if you're making stuff that you enjoy on any level and you're able to make rent, like you're doing well. That's not to say that that should be the goal, but like, don't be too hard on yourself, because it is also like it's a very small game. I think overall, like the number of working cinematographers working on like decent budgeted, like crude stuff, there's not a lot. And so like, if you're anywhere near that, like you're already, if you're a full-time filmmaker as a wedding filmmaker, or anything else, like you're in an exclusive club already. And I'm totally rooting for you to join the even more exclusive club, but, uh, <laughs> it's not like you're the only one who like isn't experiencing that. Like there's so many super talented people who are just all trying to figure it out. hundred percent. And again, speaking to why I want
1: to talk on this podcast, it just, I think helping people through that process is just, it's so daunting to go through. I think uh, what well, you're talking about, the seasons of the career, I definitely have had them. And I feel like even yesterday, I was just thinking, wow, I'm in a low again. Here we are, just dips and valley, you know, valleys and mountaintops. But I was like, don't focus on like, you know, things are a bit quieter. Your nerves start to get a little bit heightened. And then it's just like, well, hold on, zoom back. Three four months. How did you feel then? Well, things were popping off. It was exciting. There was lots going on. I constantly have to remind myself of that. It's just like if a month goes by and things aren't happening, and it's just like, well, this is how it works. This is you've done this. You know, I've been doing it for almost eight years full time, and it's just like, I mean, I've definitely learned to be more comfortable in the quiet times. But your brain still wants to play tricks on you, like, oh, you're not good enough. Oh, what are you gonna? Maybe you should go find some other source of income somewhere. Blah. blah. You know, it's like, whoa, whoa hold on, like look what you've built, look what you've done, and then understand that it's a process and it will constantly be a roller coaster and maybe explore some other things when things are quiet, work on the back end of the business, focus on reaching out to people and you know touching in on relationships. So it's a funny journey, that's for sure. <laughs> when it comes to the mindset around it specifically.
0: Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, I had a funny conversation with my dad. It was probably like two or three months ago about that. Somehow we were talking about like, therapy. And, uh, he's like, you seem like six, relatively successful. Like, why would you sort of do any of that? And it was an interesting thing. Like, you know, there's a bigger conversation there, but I was like, I think one of the things that it's been really valuable for me is I have to be able to emotionally regulate myself in highly volatile situations And like, I remember back to when I did that first $500 music video, like the night before the shoot, sitting in my car and just crying that I was like, I don't know if this is going to work. I'm going to waste all their money, whatever else. Like, what if something goes wrong and it's all my fault? And then you get to the world where it's like, oh, this is like a $200,000 day. And like, I had a thing in December, I was flying out to LA and we were supposed to shoot the next morning. I was flying in that night. We're going to shoot in the morning we're staying at the location that we were filming at and the PM calls me and he's like, Hey, so our location might be bailing on us right now. And I'm literally like boarding the plane. (laughs) And I was like, okay, so like, what are our options there? And he was like, I think it might be fine. Plan B this plan, C, that. And just like being able to sit there and go like, it's going to be okay. If it does go sideways, we're going to figure it out. These things happen. It's not your fault. You didn't do anything wrong. Like as basic as that may sound, it's like such an important skill I find in what we do. And I've been on set with people who don't have that skill and they lose their shit over nothing and then it doesn't help. And so like both onset and offset, like being in that position where it's like, if you start to do a few bigger jobs and all of a sudden you think you're like hot stuff because it's like, man, I got some checks last month. I remember early on, there was like one month where I turned like 30 or 40 grand in a month. And I was like, this is bonkers. And then the next month, no one calls you and you're like, what have I done? (laughs) And it's just like, it is a little bit, the whole lifestyle is like a heroin addiction, man. It's like, you do the most creative thing you've ever done with a big team. And then like, you get called for some corporate thing. That's like, Hey, do you really need like an AC? Like, can you like light and shoot and do all of this by yourself? And I'm like, I mean, I can. I thought I was done doing that like nine years ago, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess it's just wild. Just to your point. Yeah. It's a wild space to be able to sit in. And I think that's the part that shakes more people out of it than like the creative or technical parts. It's like people just can't adapt to the the mental and emotional burden of it. Yeah. I don't know what the word is like emotional aptitude or what, what,
1: what is that? How do we label the, uh, the muscle that you need to, to be in this space.
0: I think of it sort of as like, um, you need to have a high level of being able to be emotionally intelligent. Like at least for me, so much of filmmaking and even cinematography is more emotionally driven than visually driven in my process. There's another fascinating rabbit hole that I went down recently with some DP friends who they were like, I picture everything in my mind before I shoot it. And I can't picture anything in my mind before I shoot it. It's all very like feeling based for me. But so you have to have this real sense of like emotional connection to be able to make things that feel resonant. But then you also need the ability to sort of like turn that off in the places where it's not helpful. Because it's like, I think that's one of the things that even kills people is like, they go into like a negotiation about a job. And one of my pet peeves that I used to do and that I see people do still to me, like producing stuff is they'll be like, you go like, oh, what's your rate? And they'll be like, it's whatever. Let's say it's a thousand bucks But I'm willing to be flexible, and I'm like, you—you don't have to say that. Like, you don't have to negotiate against yourself. Like, if it's a problem, I can say, "Hey, are you flexible?" And you can say, "Yes." But I almost feel like many of us are so emotionally connected all the time that it's like anything goes wrong, we feel it emotionally. Any like hard business conversation has to happen, we feel it emotionally. And so, being able to manage that separation of like, I do have that part of me and I'm not going to like totally disassociate from it, but I have to be able to sort of like keep it in its place and know that like, this is not emotional time. This is business time. This is we're problem solving time. This is whatever else it is. And now we go into like artsy creative, but you have to have like all these different facets of yourself that aren't stepping in at the wrong time and totally pushing your life sideways. Yeah, I agree with that for sure
1: feel like there was this book I think called the E-Myth and it hits on like you are not your business and that's like the trap that we all fall into especially as freelancers as like business owners that's just like we naturally identify with what we're doing because we're giving everything we have to it I feel like I've been giving it my all to this for like a decade and I'm just like wow okay uh, what else
0: do I like to do in the world? What other things do I enjoy? Which is also an important part of it, man. Anecdotally, like I think having a life outside of filmmaking makes you so much of a better filmmaker. But like, if you only see yourself as like, I am a cinematographer, that was a big thing for me. Like a few years ago, I took a big step back and like shut down a lot of my online presence stuff and got in shape and went to therapy. And like, I had an identity crisis of like all I think of myself as is a filmmaker. Who am I without a podcast on my Instagram followers and whatever? But once I like had established more of an identity outside of that, that it's also like all the money and creative and whatever else stuff feels like it flows a little easier because it's not some sort of existential threat to me anymore. It's like this is a funny game that I play, but it's not who I am. Which I feel like sounds like such a cliche like thing to say, but it, it was such an important lesson for me and something that like. I wish people talked about more It's like, yeah, like you can and should have a life outside of all of this.
1: Yeah. Which is is a hard thing to do because to quote unquote, be successful that it it seems like you have to drive so hard because like you said, it's like an elite little group of people. And then like to get up to the other level, it is also like an even smaller pool. But ultimately I think, yeah, just the balance of that it'll eat you alive. (laughs) Because uh, again, if you're having a couple slow months or whatever it is, and you don't have anything else keeping you going, and that's all you're thinking about, like, man, it's not great. Not great.
0: Right. I think one of the other great buffers about like having a, a life is that like, because the crazy times can get so crazy, at least in my experience, it's like, you can be so slammed and then so dead. It's like, when you have that other life, instead of being like, Oh no, I'm not super busy working. You get like, Oh, I'm so glad to like, whatever, work on my hobbies, like spend time with my friends, do whatever else. Like you sort of get to enjoy the respite whereas if or respite, whatever that word is. Whereas if you're so like stuck on a, my whole thing is work, then every time there's a dip in work, it's like, what am I going to do? You're sitting there biting your nails, looking at Instagram, being jealous of everyone else. Yeah. Which is a total loophole because I mean, I don't know, for
1: example, I just posted a project the other day on Instagram, kind of it was finally done, I could actually share it. And that's what people I don't think understand is like, I shot that in December and I just posted it a couple of days ago. And people are like, wow, you did this amazing project. Look at the final product and the BTS and all this stuff. And I was like, Phew. yeah. And that took me like, I don't know how many months that is between December and now to get that all together, to create like a director's cut with, you know, and have the, all the bits and pieces there. And, and so, and it's only in the quiet times that I actually can share that stuff. <laughs> So it's kind of like this reverse effect of people think everything's going great, but it's actually in the quiet times that you can actually show the world that kind of thing.
0: Yeah. I feel like that's another helpful lens that I would just give to like anyone who's sort of coming up and maybe like watching some of the scene from outside it a little bit is like, I don't think it's like disingenuous or anything. It's just the nature of the game again. But like some of the people that I saw in New York, I was like, man, you've been like killing it lately. Cause you see stuff on their Instagram Like, like, oh, man, I haven't done anything all year. You know, I'm po- finally posting stuff that I did last year whatever else. Or like I lately have been less in like the group chats of DPs and stuff, but you would see like these behind the scenes things and like three frame grabs come out. You're like, oh, that looks sick. And then you go watch the actual spot that the person is buried. And it's like dorky as hell. And it's like, Oh, I get why you didn't share any of that. But like, everyone's very much polishing up all of the everything they share in a way that's like, this is the two good moments from this thing that otherwise was chaos. And like, so if you live too much in that space of just like looking at the highlight reels, it can really eat away at your perception of what you're doing. A lot of it's just not real is the simplest way I could explain it.
1: Yeah, 100%. I don't want to think about this, but this is a random question popped to my mind, and I'm curious. The thought I was having was around financial distribution of like when you, let's say, get a chunk of money from a shoot, how are you deciding to allocate a certain percentage to yourself or to investing in gear, investing back into the company, into marketing, whatever it might be? I just think that that was something that hit on my mind, specific to like the roller coaster and the mental health bit and all that kind of thing. Diving into the financial side of that roller coaster. Because I know that's something for me, it's just like, I spend so much money back into the business. And then I'm just like, wow, this thing is just eating all of the money that you're making. Yeah. And then it's like, when you look at your personal life, you're like, well, I haven't even, you know, it's to spend a few thousand dollars on myself, super hard to spend a few thousand dollars on a piece of gear. Oh, just like, that's like a nightly click on b It's like I'm curious how you
0: perhaps go through that process in your mind. Yeah, it is like such a rabbit hole. It's something that, to be totally honest with you, Marshall, like for about a year now, I've been sitting on like this sketch for what I guess you could call like a course on this whole topic, just because I've been like, man, it's such, it torches so many people and it doesn't have to. And the reason I don't do anything about it is, uh, one, I care too much about people, what people think of me. And I feel like if you put a course out, you're just perceived as a skeeve lately. And two, there's a part of me that's like, I don't really know what I'm talking about. But I know some stuff. And so I'm happy to talk about it in this context. Okay, so like a few basic things that I would say are, in my opinion, you have to have a buffer. You have to constantly carry a decent Cash buffer. And like when I was first starting out, that looked like I have to have $1,000 to $1,500 in an account so that if a job comes in and I have to like pay for some gear, I can. And then like a little bit later, that became like I need to have $10,000 in an account so that if a job comes in and I have to front stuff, I can. I think that number is going to depend on who you are and how you're rolling. But in an optimal world, that should also be totally separate from your personal finances. So I'm a big fan of the idea that it's like your personal and business stuff should get separated because at the beginning, you're going to actually not pay yourself at all. And if you separate it, it's a little easier to go like, oh no, I have to like pay myself before I go buy another freaking monitor or whatever. My basic system at this point is like, we have personal checking and savings. I have actually three, no, I have four business accounts and three of them are checking accounts. And one of them is a savings account. And so like all revenue comes into an operating checking account, which also makes it easy for like bookkeeping and stuff. And out of that, I will take some of that money and it goes directly into a payroll checking account. And so I am technically salaried through Challenger, mostly for tax reasons. So that money that's like dedicated, at this point, I'm going to get two automatic paychecks that come out every month. And so like money just goes into there because I have to clear my own salary every month. And I'll usually sort of keep that preloaded that it's like this has like the next month and a half already in it. So my personal payments for myself are preloaded a month and a half out now. And so then if jobs get slow, it's like that gets tuckered down a little bit. And then as it pumps back up, you sort of like refill it. And then the third checking account is uh, setting aside tax money. I don't have like a perfect system for that. To be totally honest, I'm more like I throw chunks from pretty much every job into like a savings account, which is the fourth one. And then I uh, a few years ago, I think it was 2020, I finally stopped doing all my own like bookkeeping and accounting stuff and hired people. So I use a group called Core Group. That's Core Group US. Dot com they do a lot of filmmakers and video production companies and stuff and they've been really great so i basically like i don't even use quickbooks or anything anymore they have direct access to all my accounts and they log everything they handle the payroll they tell me hey like here's what you're gonna owe for estimated taxes because i used to play the game of just like waiting until april and filing and then like crossing my fingers to figure out how big a check i was gonna have to cut and it would be like a twenty thousand dollar check every year <laughs> So we've been on like the quarterly game. It does depend a little bit on the season you're in or it can. Like for me, I definitely wasn't paying myself much at all for like the big first chunk of my career. And I just had super low overhead. One of the upsides of like living in a small market is like my rent was super low. I didn't have a car payment. I didn't like, I don't party. I don't buy fancy clothes. I could do like, a day or two. And my expenses are all set at that point. Right. And so I think that's super valuable when you're trying to establish yourself. And then at some point it's like, if you're not taking care of yourself, you're going to get miserable and burnt out and you're going to start just like working too much. And so starting to set a practice of however you want to think about it. If you're purely on the DP side, a way you could think about it is like, I'm just going to take. 10 or or 20% of this and like put it in the savings account off the gun, I'm going to take whatever my like monthly amount I want to pay myself. I do think that's a good way of thinking about it. Let's say you were like, I want to whatever, I want to make $80,000 a year. And so it's like, okay, what does that come out to monthly? And so the first thing that comes out of any jobs past expenses is paying myself up to that point. So it's like, if I have to make whatever $6,000 this month, then first $6,000 goes to me. Money after that goes to like the savings account. And then if I see a gear thing come up that feels like a good investment, if I have the money for it, I can go for it. And if I don't, I'm not going to pull it out of my money to pay myself necessarily. Cause yeah, I feel like I could probably ramble about this a lot. So I don't know if you have like a more specific direction you want to go. <laughs> no, no, I think that's great. I just was
1: kind of just having an open conversation because it's something that's. Personally, I've been working on lately, and I've been playing with a similar method to what you just spoke about for the last year or so. There's this book called Profit First. I don't know if you've you've heard of that one.
0: Yeah, that was Profit First. Is totally what put me onto it, and so I sort of like tweaked it a little bit for my uses. But that's basically what I do. Yeah.
1: So what I've been doing, and it's kind of a, it's not great for bookkeeping because I have so many bank accounts. But the idea for those listening is that you kind of have five different accounts according to the book, and you actually make five separate bank accounts. For me, those are all in a business corporation, you know, it's separate from my personal. And those accounts are an income account, an operating expense account, owners pay a profit and a tax account. And so what I've been doing is because the income we make is so, it fluctuates so much because some jobs are big, some are small, like we've talked about, that I think having a percentage set aside so for each category has been what I've been experimenting with. And I guess that's a question for you because you sound like you're taking salary. I know other friends who are taking a salary. I've been doing a percentage. So it's like 20% of every job that comes in, I put into the account called owner's pay. And then mm-hmm. once a month, I move it into my personal banking. Now, of course, that system can get scary if you have some dry months, but it can also build significantly when you have some good months. So I don't know. I've been experimenting with that lately and I've been thinking, well, maybe salary would be better because it's more consistent and maybe it helped my brain. I'm not sure. But yeah, that's why I was kind of curious to dive into what you have been doing for that salary versus percentages.
0: Yeah. I mean, the salary thing is funny. To be totally honest, I was scared of it for a long time because I was like, what if I don't get the jobs to like pay my salary? And it's like the reality, at least in America, I don't know how it is everywhere else, but it's like you can just pause your payroll at any point. (laughs) And so like, you don't have to pay yourself like that paycheck if you don't want. And if things get slow, like there was a period last year, or the year before, even where like I'd done some big investments into stuff related to the business and we had some slow time. I was like, fine personally, because I, I sort of like keep a buffer for that stuff. But they're like, oh yeah, we're just going to like turn your payroll off for three months because you don't need to. And like it's going to work out better that way. One of the other upsides of having someone who's actually looking at all of that stuff and paying attention to it. The other thing with like being on salary is like, you can still take what, you know, they call them profit distributions, but like, cause I used to always do the thing that it's like, I just transfer from my business account to my personal account. And so you can still do that. You just call it a profit distribution now. But if it's like, you have a big job coming, you're like, oh, I want to like take this five grand and throw it to myself. You're not like stuck to your salary in any way. So for me, the salary is like a baseline thing that I have to do. And then I'll still periodically like keeping an eye on sort of the fluctuations of all that be like, Oh, I'm just gonna like take a chunk, we have, a you know, some extra money sitting in the savings thing. And I'll slide some of that over to me, or whatever else it may be. So it's definitely still like a fluid thing. I don't have like, this like perfectly mathed out auto transfer system for everything. But I think just getting into the mindset of like, even going into jobs, like what are my costs on this? What am I getting paid? Am I like billing for things that I should be billing for? Am I getting reimbursed for things that are up for like reimbursement? And then you come into the actual like bookkeeping money moving side of it. Just don't let it all burn a hole in your pocket. Cause I I do see guys, I don't understand how people do it to be honest, but I've definitely talked to people who are like, sort of quote unquote, paycheck to paycheck in the film industry. And I'm like, dude, I could not to be totally honest, like I sort of sit in a position where I'm like, no one could call me for nine months, and I'd be fine. And I think that's like, that's the move. Because if you can be in that position, you can also be like pickier about the jobs you take. And I know some people who get stuck where it's like, they have to take everything that comes in and then they miss out on the jobs they really want because they're like already booked on stuff they didn't want to be doing to begin with. Yeah, it's a cycle. Yeah, and so like I've always been sort of big on the like I want to be relatively like financially free in all of this and I'm not like a baller. I'm not like making millions of dollars like some of these guru guys are, but I feel like I've been able to navigate it to a place that it's like buy smart, sell stuff before it depreciates too much. If you're in the gear game, all that stuff really helps. But yeah, I mean, if people have any like specific questions, I'm happy to like talk about that more too, uh, if they want to like directly reach out or anything, because it can be weird. But I really also would highly recommend, it depends a little bit on where you're at in your career, but hiring someone to look at all that stuff for you, just from a peace of mind perspective. Someone going like this looks great, or this doesn't necessarily totally make sense. Like, have you ever thought about this like this? Coming back to the DPing thing, it's like if you only know your way of doing it, most of us are not good business bookkeeping accountant people. And just having the outside eyes on it and then knowing that, like, I don't have to worry about it that's like, oh, someone else is classifying all my stuff for me. Someone else is keeping an eye on taxes and payroll and cash flow. And like, we have quarterly check ins on all that stuff. Like, it's pretty low touch overall. Like they just handle it, everything for the most part, but like it removes a lot of the anxiety because there was definitely like the first like eight years of my career, I was just constantly stressed around like, am I breaking the law? Am I somehow doing this wrong? Can I write <laughs> off this weird thousand dollars of peanuts we had to buy for a shoe? I don't know what I'm doing. Like you just feel like you're committing fraud all the time. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, that it
1: comes to like relinquishing wearing all the hats and of course in the beginning it doesn't make sense but once the ball gets rolling i think the more hats you can hand off and it still makes financial sense i'm all all for it these days i'm constantly outsourcing as much as i can and just trying to focus on the things that i do love doing of course that's a fine balance obviously financially to be handing other jobs to other people you have to have the work coming in but i will say that it's been a much better balance or the my mindset around what I'm doing has been a lot healthier since I've offloaded a lot of those things. Like you're saying bookkeeping and accounting is definitely one of those things.
0: And it is like, it's a game that if you know how to play it for better or worse, however you want to feel about that, like, and theoretically, if you want to really get into it and understand it, you can do all of it yourself. You don't need help. But like the first year that I worked with core, that's where they were like, you really are at a point where you should like have an LLC and put yourself on payroll for tax purposes. And I was like, okay, I've heard that. I don't understand it. Let me ask all the dummy questions. And so like I asked them all the dummy questions and they were like, no, this totally makes sense. Here's how the salary thing works. Yada, 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 yada. We did that. And the next like tax filing we did, they just ran like the simulation both ways. And they were like, if we did this the way you had been doing it, you'd be paying fifteen thousand dollars more in taxes right now. And so it was like, oh, that one change more than paid for like the next five years of accounting for me. And now I just don't have to do it anymore. So like what win, 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 you know. Yeah. And you don't know until you go down those avenues. But I say that is one thing that
1: I've been shocked to hear some of my friends that are still sole proprietorships. And here in Canada, we call that sole proper corporation. But I'm just like, man, the amount of tax, why just like
0: reach out to an accountant or something, um, please. Right. There's a lot of goofy thinking too, with uh, at least I've run into people who are like, they're so scared of taxes that they just spend everything they make on things that they consider (laughs) write-offs. It's like, this also is not a great financial strategy of like, I don't make any money. I spend all of it on gear, but like, I don't pay taxes is like, that's not a good way to do it either. Like talk to someone who can help you change how you think about that, but that's going to destroy you in the long run.
1: Yeah. I think that's a funny mindset. I think having someone to tell you exactly how much money you should be spending at the end of the year to burn that, what you need to make up for rather. But uh, yeah, I think that is a funny mindset. And in the beginning, people say, oh, yeah, just write it off. Just write it off. I mean, like, okay, careful. (laughs) You need to eat food too. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to dive into just if there's any processes or systems, since we're speaking about like accounting, bookkeeping, that kind of thing, is there anything on the, like, from when it comes to backend organization with your, with the business that has helped you or stands out to you that you're constantly using or has made life
0: easier? I feel like I'm not naturally a great process person. It's something that I've been really working on the last few years is like designing better systems. I guess I would say that like, I am a process person, but most of my processes happen in my head. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Okay. Process type things that have been game changers for me. A few years ago, I moved my workflow and this is like a slightly weird thing that I'm sure someone's going to tell me is like a horrible idea for some reason, but it's worked out really well for me. I have currently a 16 terabyte raid on my desk that is sort of my like working raid for projects. And even when I was mostly DPing, I would generally bring an SSD to set all the time and I would try and get a copy of all the footage, which I would highly recommend. Buy yourself like a little compact, like an Angel Bird or a Samsung or something. Bring it. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> just whoever's doing media management yeah, exactly. be like, I just want a copy of all of this. Yeah, yeah.
1: Slide it in because there. Because you want a copy of that. Because you know if you don't, you're never going to get it. It's just like it, it just disappears into the ether of who knows where it goes.
0: Right. No one's going to give it to you. You have to ask for it. But if you just sort of show up, most people will just be like, Oh yeah, we'll make a third copy, whatever. So I would always take stuff and back it up. So I had it for reels or just like pulling my own grades or whatever else. But my raid is hooked up to Dropbox business and the whole raid is connected to Dropbox business. We're going to go down this rabbit hole. I like it. Oh, yeah.
1: This is uh, is something I've also come into recently and it's changed the game. So let's keep going.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. So my whole raid, the minute any footage gets dumped onto that or any files get put onto that, it immediately starts backing up to my Dropbox account, which has unlimited cloud storage. And so we have offsite backups of everything. I can send editors anything at any point. So like there was a buddy of mine who I was like, hey, can you like take a pass at this edit? And he has like gig downloads. And in like 20 minutes, he downloaded the whole project. He's starting to make changes to it. But I also started just like organizing everything. So like all photo stuff that I do, there's like a folder structure that's like photos, raw photos, 2021, 2022, 2023, and then like by months. And then I'll usually dump cards by date. And so it would be like, I just did one yesterday. It was like 628 CVS Health Scout. And the raw photos go into there. They get imported into Lightroom. They get exported to a correlating finished photos folder that's also organized by date. But so now like I can go back through and like the last four years, look at every photo raw or edited that I've taken or put out. Before I had a, I still have somewhere. I just need to throw it out. But I have like a melt crate of like Western digital hard drives. Don't we all? And it's like impossible. It's the worst. And then once you're done with something, you can just move it to online only or archive it on Dropbox. And so it's still backed up and you can still see it, but it's not taking up RAID space. So that whole system has been really clutch for me Having all that stuff, being able to pull things up, even like I could just like go pull up frames that I've exported like on my phone, on the Dropbox app and search for things. That's been a big one. Google Photos, I've got my phone on Google Photos now, which is like a weird little workflow thing, but it constantly backs up all my photos and then you can just archive them to the cloud sort of similarly, but the Google Photos search feature is incredible. It's one of these like AI content search things. So I can be like lighting, Omaha and it'll like pull up all the phone photos or whatever else I had or frames. And so that stuff's really cool for digging through older things. I've been using TV for project management stuff more, which is more on like the producing side where we'll do like creative development, pull references into there. I mean, you could totally use it as a DP for pulling references and things, but also just like Organizing calendars and projects and like tasks for yourself, I really like Assemble as like a project management thing for filmmaking. Uh, yeah, on like the DP side, there isn't a whole lot else. I mean, just like lifestyle game changers. If you don't have a good camera cart, <laughs> yeah, it's the worst thing to buy up front, but it, you can never go back. Like I finally bought an innovative cart like four or five years ago, and it's the best worst three thousand dollars you'll ever spend. <laughs> Same thing. I finally bought a O'Connor 1030D Flowtech setup in like 2021, maybe. It's the least satisfying. It's like, it was like an $8,000 tripod, but it's so nice. It's like, oh, you just can't go back. And that's another one of those things that like. It's funny because I realized that I did so much handheld stuff for so long because I just hated bad tripods. Right. (laughs) And that like once you've used a decent tripod head, I was like, I just want to do slow pans of everything. I feel like Wes Anderson now, like it really does change things. So yeah, gear wise, tripod, easy rig, uh, cart. I think that's probably the biggest stuff. I don't know. Is there anything else specific? Yeah, no, I was thinking from like, it could even be pre-production workflow. I don't know everyone's
1: got their things I'm super into the workflow stuff right now and um I've been building out I don't know I use this app called Notion I don't know if you've heard of it but you know it's essentially like a note taking app on steroids and you can build tables and Pull photos in and then just you can build an environment in there so that's been really cool i've been able to build kind of like for film production stuff i have like the whole process laid out so from
0: mm-hmm. project
1: gets greenlit to like you know we're in the editing phase to like we're in color sound delivery blah, blah blah and you can kind of just drag your make a card for every project and pull it through and remember
0: you can add on your tick box and create templates and all that so that's another rabbit hole to go down yeah That sounds like exactly what I'm doing with Assemble, but it's like you're just custom building it in Notion. Yes, I did. I have looked into Assemble, and it does look like that, essentially, I think. But
1: um, it looks like more polished and specific for the industry is what it looks like, which is cool.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah.
1: And for those who are listening, I just want to quickly hit on the Dropbox Unlimited thing. I know because we touched on it, but it's something that I can just throw a few more bits of information out there for those who are like, what the heck did they just talk about? But the catch to Dropbox Unlimited is that you need three people or so to speak, you get charged for three seats. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. You can not have under three seats. Yeah. So it's like, it's only 33 bucks a month, which is incredible, but you need at least a handful of other people in there with you. Otherwise it's like 1200 bucks a year. I'm speaking Canadian. Yeah. I was going to say, I think it's like 800 ish American USD. Yeah. So what I've done is I've just got a couple other DP friends to jump in on that with me, and then I just build them You know, once a year. We all pay the old Dropbox subscription so that you have a minimum of three people in there, and then I'm not fully paying for it all. And then, but your Dropbox is separate. You don't actually be able to access anyone's stuff. You get the good rate, and then you have essentially unlimited space, which is pretty rad for someone who owns a Raptor with 8K. And those file sizes are necessary to have something like that going on these days. So
0: <laughs> how much do you have on your Dropbox? Do you know? I have 72 terabytes. Okay. You got me beat. I was going to say, I think I'm at like 40. Okay. Well, it's a race. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a funny game when people ask me, about like files. I don't know why this conversation comes up a few times when people are like, How big are your files now? It's like, we have like 40 terabytes on Dropbox. And they're like, that's crazy. And I'm like, if there's people, yeah, but like hospitals have petabytes, like this is still tiny. I have 51 terabytes, I guess. So it's bigger than I thought, but you still win. (laughs) Yeah, well, just go buy a Raptor and
1: shoot high quality and you'll be there in no time. Yeah, I feel that. So where do you see yourself going in the next handful of years? You said you've kind of like reset, done some thinking on took a little bit of a pause, stepped away from a few things. Now you're coming back. Like, where do you see yourself heading in the next handful of years with all this stuff? Cause I do see you, you have your hands in a few things. Like you're obviously making commercial video work. I go to your website. I see some photography. You've got the YouTube, you've got podcast. Like where, where do you see yourself going?
0: That's a good question. Yeah. I think I've been sort of like reassessing that a lot over the last year. In my mind, at least, like the direction that I would like to go is more into expanding into creative directing and EPing things more. I've been doing that a bit over the last few years. To be totally honest, like there's been a few projects that I've gotten to really like, I just like being hands on in the creative process. I love being on set. I love the actual like making of stuff, but I find that I'm like very attached to feeling good about what we're doing is the best way I could describe it. Like I have, I have some friends who they just love being on set and playing and they don't care if the thing is like quote unquote good or not. And I'm very much like obsessed with like making the best thing we can. There was a job I did in December that I got to EP, DP and do stills on. And it was like the dream. Cause it was like, you just set everything up schedule wise exactly how you want it. And like pull in all the crew and everything. And like, it's not like me doing it all by myself, but I sort of got to like do all the, High level, like budget scheduled timeline stuff, and then actually like lead the department on set. So, I mean, I would love to do more things like that. It's like honestly, if I could even just do like one of those gigs a month, like I think that would be awesome. I would honestly love to expand more into like what I guess I would describe as like the art space. And whether that's with like photos or mixed medium art or or even film stuff, but getting more into like working with artists and musicians and I think I've come to the point that's like, at least for right now, I'm a little tired of marketing. I'm feeling like if I get to pick, it's like I'd probably downregulate some of the like corporate and marketing stuff and go back more into like art and creative directing. I'm very grateful, I guess, to be like multi talented, but it is sometimes. Also annoying when people ask like, what do you do? And I'm like, I don't know, man. I do a lot of different (laughs) things. Like I like just DP a music video in Nashville. I'm like producing a documentary and a CrossFit documentary in a few weeks. Like I'm shooting this corporate thing with an agency next month. I'm doing a stills campaign over here. Like I like making stuff. And so I think just like continuing to make stuff. Collaborating again, I would say is one of the other big things. Like I feel like my collaboration rate went down since COVID. And like, I miss just the process of working with different other people with new perspectives on whatever that is, you know, whether that's like me getting called in to like shoot something and working with a team or like even I've been doing some like producing consulting with like some agencies who are having problems with like their creative, not showing up on set the way they want because they don't understand how stuff on set actually works. Even that's been really fun for me to go like, okay, like here's the idea. How do I teach you guys better how the reality of like making that happens work? Because I've been the guy who gets handed a deck and you're like, there's no freaking way this is happening, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really any opportunities to like help tie together that gap between like creative and execution because I love cool creative stuff. That's what got me so into all this too, was like the Vimeo staff pick era of like people being super creative with filmmaking. And so just wanted to like re-inspire that in people too. I feel like I get some bummed out sometimes by just like the mass of like YouTuber social content stuff that smashes my eyeballs. That's like, man, does no one care about like real quote unquote, real like creative filmmaking stuff anymore, which at some point it's just like old man yelling in a cloud, right? Like uh, vlogs are just what they are and that's all fine. But I think, yeah, just sort of continuing to explore like how do we be more creative with these mediums? How do we be expansive with these mediums? How do we bring new things into these mediums? And whatever my role in that is, I love the technical side. I love the gear side. I love the creative idea side. And so just sort of continuing to see like where the opportunities are to plug in with other people to make cool stuff.
1: That's cool. Yeah, and as we begin to wrap things up, I'm just thinking, is there anything else that you might wanna share while we're having a chat with people who are just getting into this or even maybe a veteran of 10 years that
0: be helpful along the journey? Is anything that comes to mind? I think like if you're starting out, one of the things that fe- feels really helpful to me in hindsight is I would say focus more on being creative and developing relationships than like the whole gear game. If you have like a bunch of capital and just want to buy stuff, then like, there's nothing wrong with that. But like the first four or five years of my career, like I owned a T3i and then I owned a Canon 6D and then I owned a Canon C100. And like I would get brought into DP on things and we were shooting on like Epics and whatever else it was at the time, C300s. And then even when I was like producing direct client stuff, we would just rent things for jobs. But I found that to be really helpful because I was way more focused on generating work and doing good work than I was on like watching YouTube videos around what new piece of gear I should buy. And so I think just like mentally, there's a lot of this mindset, which I can get sucked into too. That's like, well, in the long run, it's more financially efficient for me to just own the thing. And again, I own a bunch of gear. I'm not really speaking against that, but I think like that whole season where me and friends were just like finding people who would give us $3,000 to make a video. And then we were just spending all the money on rentals and we were just making the best thing we possibly could. I mean, probably not the best work I've ever done, but like, that's the work that got me on the map. When you're like, Oh, I'm going to go like buy an FX3 and go sell myself to like corporate talking head things. It's like, yeah, you can make good money there, honestly, but you can also get really stuck there. And if that's what you want to do, by all means, I still do some of that. (laughs) This thing that I'm doing in two weeks is a little bit of that, like corporate talking head. I'm not above that. But uh, yeah, I think just like taking a real honest look at yourself on like, what do I value? And how do I line my actions up to incentivize myself to pursue what I actually value and not get sidetracked in like, people talking about edge sharpness of new G master lenses on Facebook, because it doesn't, matter at all (laughs) yes i agree well i think there's a lot of little
1: great tips and tricks in this episode and um yeah i really appreciate you coming on having a chat today it's been fun after you know having followed and watched you for a handful of years to kind of get to chat where would people go to find you best where are you most active
0: I'm probably most active on Instagram, which is at E Borsier, E B O U R C I E R. I'm not really super present anywhere else. I've been like watching TikTok some lately, but I don't really share anything on TikTok. So yeah, that's probably the best place. Right. DMs on Instagram is where to hit you up. Yeah. Instagram, DMs, happy to chat in the DMs or if you, uh, my website is like in flux, but if you hit up my website, which is the same thing, or just Google Evan Borsier or, uh, the Challenger Media House website. You can get my emails there and happy to chat with people. Great. And the podcast was easy to find? The podcast is sort of on hold right now. We haven't put one out in like seven months, I don't think. It's out there. If you want to go look up, it's called the Super Secret Film Cast. It was a big thing like seven or eight years ago or whatever for me. And it popped off. And then when I took a big break, I archived our Squarespace blog and that's what it was all hosted on and I lost all of like the old episodes in the process oh man and I was a bummer and then like last year or t- maybe two years ago 2021 we started I've done like two sets of new episodes I've never really fully hit my stride with it again because I think I'm a little unsure like where to go with it to be honest <laughs> I like I love having these conversations with people but I've been like I could go ha- call up my like bigger commercial filmmaker Rolodex, but I don't know if people want to listen to that stuff anymore. Like, it seems like people don't care. Maybe they do and just no one's talking about it. I don't know. It's been a weird thing for me, but I've so enjoyed this conversation, man. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Evan. Okay. That was Evan here. Evan is an awesome guy and I've really appreciated all the good content and advice he's put out into the world over the years in our little bubble of an industry. I encourage you to check out some of his content on YouTube by searching Evan Borcier, that's B-O-U-R-C-I-E-R, or his podcast, A Super Secret Film Cast, which it sounds like he's not doing anymore, but there's still some great episodes on there to check out for some tips and tricks. In future episodes, I will be speaking with photographers, cinematographers, directors, producers, reps, and anyone who has decided to take this ambitious leap of faith and making a life and a living behind the lens. If you got a sec, Drop me a DM, say hello. If you like this episode, let me know. And I'd love if you took 30 seconds to leave a star rating or review for the podcast to help it grow or to share with a friend if you found something of value. Hope you're having a good day and we'll catch you next time on ShotList.